This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howey, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the fur bearers. The name Takaya may ring a bell if you follow wildlife news. He was the lone wolf who lived on the archipelagos in the Salish Sea on the eastern coast of Vancouver Island. The word Takaya means wolf in the indigenous language of the tsleil Nation. Cheryl Alexander, a conservationist, photographer, and educator, spent several years forming a distanced but unique relationship with Takaya. Neither interfered with the other, but Cheryl was able to gain deep insight into Takaya's life. Through this time, Cheryl witnessed a government set on killing Takaya, media villainizing him after an encounter with campers, his perseverance through dangers both human-created and environmental, and his tragic death at the hands of a hunter. A 2019 documentary, Takaya, Lone Wolf, captured the hearts of many as his story, as told by Cheryl, beamed around the world. And in a 2020 book, Cheryl has lovingly assembled her photos, thoughts, and anecdotes of Takaya, along with her own journey of discovery about wolves and the region, in a beautiful story that shows who Takaya truly was. Cheryl joined Defender Radio in recent months to discuss Takaya, the process of writing and assembling her book, and how a chance encounter with a wolf while kayaking changed her life. It seems obvious to start at the beginning. But I don't want to start at the beginning, per se. The book itself starts at your beginning, and we'll go through some of that. But I thought I would start instead before the beginning in what your experience with uh, with wolves was. Um, because something that emerges as a really neat theme is your evolving mm-hmm. knowledge and your understanding of others' knowledge, which is the part I really enjoyed. So prior to this, I I read that you were involved in a lot of outdoors activities. You worked at a really cool uh, program for young offenders, a rehabilitation program in nature. But what kind of connection had you had to large animals like wolves? So that will be a very short answer because I um, had essentially had no experience with wolves whatsoever. I I knew about wolves, of course, uh, but wolves for me was was were always creatures that were somewhere else. Um, and even though I knew yeah. they were in the wilderness areas where I went into, and I've been spent much of my life um, in wilderness areas, both doing uh, environmental education and, as you mentioned, the um, program for young offenders. It was an outward bound um, kind of program, so it's high risk wilderness. Yep. We encountered bears. Uh, I've been in the wild with grizzlies, uh, with black bears. Uh, I have never seen a cougar, even though on Vancouver Island, we have one of the largest and most dense dense populations of cougars in North America. Um, so never seen a cougar. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, had not given wolves uh, too much thought. It's one of those ones where... Uh... I think for a lot of us growing up, even wolves have always been a story rather than something we necessarily saw. And I know that leads to a lot of the problems that we're dealing with now in terms of uh, coexistence, particularly uh, with the agricultural industry. Um, Yes, wolves were always 
of the other. They were of the yes. fairy tales. They were of the stories. Occasionally you'd see stories in the news, but not often. Um, they were of the Farley Mowat uh, variety. Yep. So, you know, historically in Canada, we have Farley Mowat who gave us a Never Cry Wolf. And that was mm-hmm. ca- kind of the main introduction I had to wolves. And in fact, it wasn't even until, oh, I'd say about 10 years ago that I had um, given much thought to his work and what he had done. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's very interesting that we live in a, in a country that where we have a fairly large populations of wolves in some areas. And yet most of us never have and never will see a wolf. Well, I think that's true with a lot of wildlife in Canada, in fact. Uh, again, one of the ones that's been fascinating in the news lately, and for those listening, we're recording at the end of May 2021, um, the encounters with bears in the wild in BC and Ontario and everywhere in Canada, it surprises me because the first thing people say is I was surprised. <laughs> and the first thing I learned about nature as a city kid, let's be clear, is when you're in nature, you should expect to see nature. Uh, yes. You know, where I grew up, of course, nature is more raccoons and aggressive politicians and insurance salespeople. But <laughs> nonetheless, right, the expectation is if you're in nature, you can expect to see wildlife. And that's always a little odd to me. Yes. Uh, but I feel like we can cycle around that philosophy for a day and a half. <laughs> um, uh, well, it inter- that's interesting, though, because my experience of being in the wilderness is that for the most part, you actually don't see many wild animals and the reason you don't is because they avoid us and they don't actually want to interact with us so it's only been recently that we have bears um, coming more into conflict with human beings and it's because we're moving more and more into their territories and we're providing attractants and and, you know, in, in Victoria here, we have a huge urban deer population now that did mm-hmm. not exist um, 10, 15 years ago. Just you, you wouldn't see a deer. If you saw a deer, it was like, oh, wow, that is amazing. <laughs> now it is like, yeah. oh, get out of my garden. <laughs> Which is interesting where I grew up. I was actually just talking about this with my mom the other day. Um, the area where I grew up uh, was always suburban. But I remember as a child, there were deer crossing signs and We'd go for walks in the ravines and, uh, you know, drive wherever we were going and see deer and see fox and see all of these other animals. And it was totally normal. Then, uh, I guess by the 90s, all of where they were running to and from got paved. And it's now, you know, 20, 30 years later, we're starting to see the animals again, not because they've returned, but because we've continued to push out and they're just figuring out a way to get by with what they have. Yeah. Uh, And that's, again, is one of those perspective shifts that changes the narrative of the story. And that is my segue that I'm forcing to talk about Takaya, because that is for me the theme Beyond the the beautiful memoir of your experience with this handsome young man and uh, your your growth, it it is a very much a memoir. That's how it's written, and that is the warm fuzzies it leaves you with. How did you decide that this story needed to be told? I'm not going to spoil all of the the really lovely narration you give to your first encounters with Takaya, because those are special poetic things that people should read and not hear me, you know, blathering through in my voice. Um, 
So we'll we'll circle back a bit to that. But how did you decide that this story, all of these photos, all of these things you had learned had to be told? It was a an evolving process for me. Uh, there wasn't one moment when I decided, A, that I was going to photograph and learn more about the wolf. Um, it was it developed over a period of months when I began to realize the uniqueness of his life out there. And I also began to realize that no one was paying any attention to it. Um, I would have thought that uh, possibly some academics, some scientists, uh, as it was very close to the city, might have been interested uh, in, in this very unique life. Uh, I used to teach at the University of Victoria, so I know the, the world of academia, and, you know, they're interested in, in research um, opportunities. I was yeah. quite surprised to find out that, that the parks department knew very little about um, the wolf didn't seem to be much interested. Uh, no one at the university, including the wolf um, specialists, scientists, were uh, paying attention. So I just thought, oh, I'm going to see what I can learn. And I had the opportunity to do that. It was an interesting uh, process in terms of how I would do that because I was a, a photographer in terms of my passion. Mm -hmm. That wasn't what I did for my work uh, in my real life leading up to this, but it was something that followed me through my life. And I was very interested in wilderness and wildlife photography. So I, I thought, well, the, the key thing was, you know, what's he doing? Can I see him? Can I take photographs? Um, none of which was easy because he was elusive and uh, wolves are not easy to see. So, I got excited when I actually saw him and, you know, thought, oh, I, I actually got a photograph of this wolf. Um, and then slowly as I began to see some of the unique characteristics of his life, I, I actually was triggered by my husband who said to me, I would come home and I describe what I had seen that, Oh my God, you wouldn't believe what I saw Takea doing today. And he go, he finally, he said, you know, you should be documenting this with video. And I thought, uh, yeah, but I don't know anything about video. So I set about to learn how to do that because it was very interesting visually uh, and a way to document more aspects of his life. So all of that, I kept notes right from the beginning. I have, books of notes yep. because I am a, um, a, a scientist uh, and I wanted to document what I was seeing and observing and when I saw him and um, yeah so that was kind of the process I didn't set out to think I would write a book and I didn't set out to think I would produce a movie and yeah. <laughs> both of those things happened and it, it's kind of yep. been a big surprise to me <laughs> yeah that's it's funny how some of those things uh, turn on you eh? uh so I'm going to go out and paddle my boat out and see if I can get some nice photos. Oh, a wolf cut to nine, 10 years later. And <laughs> you're doing interviews about your book, having produced a film uh, and are making change for wildlife across BC. So it's, it's always interesting how life uh, twists around that way. Um, it's been a journey and it's been a wonderful one and it's been a surprising one. And I'm very thankful for it. Yeah. And, and the, that comes through in the book. I, I I gotta say, it's it's really enjoyable because my expectations reading the book. I well, I, to be honest, I didn't have expectations. I didn't know what to expect necessarily. Um, 
but I I had concerns that it was going to be a I saw a wolf and I wanted to hug the wolf and this is the story of hugging the wolf back <laughs> in my head yeah. that's what I was afraid of and it is in no way that um, it is as I said it's a memoir as a journalist I appreciate the way it's written from your perspective with your your own challenges of your thoughts your little interviews with people and their commentary. Uh, how you put it together too, I find very interesting. Was that a sitting down at a giant table with a thousand pieces of like notes and things and trying to put it together? What was that process? <laughs> that actually, that process was really interesting because I, um, I, I just, I had so many different thoughts about how I would write it. I have for years loved, um, understanding other people's thought processes and uh, uh, using quotes uh, and uh, um, illustrating those quotes with um, photographs. So I, I just made personal uh, calendars for years that I, where I did that process. So I started off with that kind of thinking in mind, how would I structure it around some really serious um, concepts like uh, adaptability uh, inspiration, you know, so I, so I had that process, but I wasn't very good at figuring out how to tell it. And I'd never written a book before. So yeah. it was sort of like, okay, um, I need to figure out all the different dimensions. And I ended up using Trello, which do you, do you oh, know yeah. Trello? I do know Trello. <laughs> so I use Trello to organize with the help of a really wonderful editor uh, to organize all the different potential threads and then move them around and put them in places that seem like they would fit and then organize them around the conceptual um, uh, content of each little sort of chapter. And I kind of wanted it to be, I wanted it to be available to um all ages. So I didn't, and I really did not want it to be academic. Uh, from my perspective, that does not capture people, turns people right off. Um, so I wanted the language to be really simple. And in fact, it's worked out that way because I get all kinds of um, uh, input from people who have kids, who read it with their kids. The kids love it. Uh, 11 year olds are plowing through it. And so that's been really rewarding. It was a, it was an iterative process. <laughs> Yes. And, and I can appreciate too, and, and perhaps this is a science background combined with the creativity. The first line of the first full chapter, uh, so after the foreword, um, he arrived on the island shore alone, possibly at dawn, likely exhausted, probably exhilarated, perhaps fearful, certainly on a mission. That's one of my favorite lines I've read all year. All honesty, it sets both this visual of this wolf emerging onto the islands, looking around and figuring it out, but also puts you in those shoes of what would I be feeling? And that to me is the magic of you're not saying what he felt. You're saying these are the things he might have felt. These are the things he might have thought based on what we know. And that is such a, a difficult line to walk and needle the thread. Uh, so congratulations, first of all, for that. But <laughs> Thank you. Is, is that... Is that what your experience with Takaya, you know, the first times you came upon him and you started looking for those footprints again, are, are those the kind of thoughts you were having then? Or did that come with more reflection as time went on? No, those are the kind of thoughts I was having then. Uh, it really evoked a lot of questions 
in my mind as I began to um, see him observe his life and start to think about his origins and why on earth he was there, um, why he had stayed there. I mean, all the things I knew about wolves then I started to learn. So I amassed a large library of wolf books. <laughs> and, yep. the, uh, and, you know, um, it's an interesting thing. I wasn't a wolf scientist. I, I was a social scientist in my, in my life. And I have written many documents, many papers, but I didn't write about wolves. And so I had to learn from scratch a lot of the science behind wolves. I now feel like I've done my PhD in wolf uh, studies. <laughs> and <laughs> I think, yeah, I think this is a good thesis. <laughs> I would accept it. Thank you. And um, yeah, I, I ended up really um, just asking myself questions and trying to figure out how to find the answers. So that resulted in me becoming kind of like a sleuth and you know trying to figure out well what do people know about where he came from and why how did he get here and I, I did end up finding out some information that no one had kind of put together um, about where he came from including the early photographs of him actually coming across the city uh, so it was that yeah. kind of process and you know what else Michael I I just kept thinking about what it would be like as a human being to be, to come upon a shore of a land that somehow I needed to uh, eke out my existence in and to find that I had no year round source of fresh water, that I didn't have any of the stuff I was used to eating. You know, where's the Starbucks? Where's the um, lattes in the morning? (laughs) Where's my dinner going to come from? And yeah. thinking, I don't yeah. think many human beings would be able to do what he was able to do. Oh, no. No, not at all. Um, and to paint that picture, could you tell me a bit about the, uh, and I'm going to try this word, and I have been reading this word my whole life, and I can spell it with my eyes closed. Archipel- archipelago? <laughs> How close am I? No, you're sort of close. <laughs> it's got an A in it. I'm certain Ar- of that. Ar- the archipelago. Archipelago, thank you. Um, <laughs> Which is, I'll decide whether or not to edit that out. And, you know, just <laughs> Which archipelago. Is a, archipelago. I guess you can put accents wherever you want. Like I say Takea, you say Takaya. It doesn't really matter. It's it's Well, that one I actually will try and get right because that is a uh, indigenous word. Well, the re- I, I actually honestly don't know how it's truly pronounced as an indigenous oh, well. word. I am not indigenous. I... I chose that word but I had never heard it pronounced and mm-hmm. I ended up just the way it looked I said it to Kea so you know for me it just was my personal word for him um yeah uh, many people say to Kaya and maybe that's more accurate I don't really know anyway <laughs> uh <laughs> archipelago um <laughs> So one of the things that, that surprised me, and you, you just mentioned it, was that there is no year-round fresh water. As someone who is, was born and raised around the Great Lake system, that kind of boggles my mind. Uh, and it is surprising. I mean, I would think Vancouver Island would have something, uh, you know, ponds or inlets that somehow fresh water can sustain it. But I guess it makes sense. It's, it's in the ocean. Well, Vancouver Island does have tons of fresh water. But oh, well, this go. is not Vancouver Island. This is a small Correct. archipelago. <laughs> archipelago. Very close to Vancouver Vancouver Island. Uh, but it is yes. just a tiny a group 
a tiny group of islands that is not connected to Vancouver Island, uh, although it's very close. And it it is what does not have a year-round source of fresh water. Right, right. Uh, and one of the things I thought was very cool, and again, I'm going to be skipping around a little bit here. I apologize for that. Um, but the you had uh, surmised... Because Takaya was clearly traveling around. Takaya was tra- traveling around, going from from spot to spot, and they clearly come to this island somehow. Clearly swimming, and the the concept had been that when there's a low tide level, you can connect them all. Uh, the Songhees Nation calls them. I'm going to let you try that. Uh, one. I don't know the proper pronunciation, but it is to chess. Yes. To chess. Okay, I've got it written down. Chess, and it means one island. In their language, yes, which is a it, it it doesn't really turn into one island, but there are little um, it, intertidal outcroppings that connect in different places. Uh, so, but they are truly islands unto themselves. There's yes. a there's one very large one, two pretty large ones, and then a bunch of very small ones. Um, and he did travel around all of those islands between them at will. And I think almost on a daily basis. Yeah. That's remarkable. And what you found was in fact that he was likely not waiting for low tide and making the easy journey, but was actually swimming around. Uh, and I think at one point you noted it was about two kilometers away from where you are on the edge of the Salish Sea uh, with all that traffic used for transportation and other large uh, traffic. So the idea of this wolf somehow swimming there safely and then not just finding a way to thrive, but making it his own little private sort of area is pretty wild. Uh, and being able to swim again, you know, my girl JJ is a lab mix and she loves to swim. But, you know, that's for a tennis ball and hot dog bits. I don't know that she would take the risk to swim uh, you know, across a significant channel for the hopes of something. He, it was. Uh, what's it like when you when you realize well, that? It took me a while to realize that because the common knowledge, at least what I had gleaned initially, was that he only lived on Discovery Island, which is the larger island of the group. <clears throat> and so I, I set off with that kind of thought in my mind that that was he was mostly on Discovery Island. It turned out, uh, as I began to discover when I watched him and looked for signs and began to learn more and more about his life out there, and I discovered that, in fact, uh, he often was anywhere else besides Discovery Island, and you would never know which island he was going to be on. And then after I started to set up some trail cameras, I did discover that he actually swam amongst these islands um, at all hours of the day and night. So uh, I have lots of images of him crossing between these small islands at three, four in the morning uh, in the dark. So he, yeah, and I and I observed him actually swimming against um, very strong currents, but in a way, you'll know this being from Ontario, probably that if you um, are in a canoe or a kayak, there's a way of crossing uh, a big um, uh, current, and that's by um, by turning, you know, by ferrying. It's called ferrying, and you turn yourself at slight an angle and you swim up channel and that takes you just directly across so he actually had figured out how to do that i am both amazed and never surprised when i hear more about the intelligence of wolves 
I remember when I first heard about how they have a natural understanding in their hunting tactics that the U.S. military sends generals to the war college to learn. Like, <laughs> exactly. That's, when you start to think about it in that kind of a way, it's pretty remarkable uh, who they are and what they're capable of just on their own. Um, yeah, the ability to adapt is quite uh, remarkable and, and uh, very inspiring. Uh, I just recently heard a radio interview of uh, someone who was, uh, it was actually Quirks and Quarks on CBC. They were interviewing a scientist from the States and they had been doing some studies with wolves, realizing that they, um, instead of being always the hunters that we assume, which is working in large groups, taking down large predators, uh, cooperating, they also spent a lot of time in, in um, very a stakeout kind of behavior, uh, very quietly waiting and uh, having eating beaver. Uh, killing beaver i saw that one yeah that was i was I, you, you were talking i said that's sounding familiar you said beaver i know yeah. what you're talking about that was a very cool thing to watch yeah to to. so the thing about that is that takea did that exemplified that uh in the extreme he did not have any kind of hunting uh style that required him to move fast uh for over a long distance he occasionally would try and hunt uh um mink who, move, who do move very quickly. Yep. So he would have to move very quickly in a short period of time, but, but then they would be gone. And the same with otters. With seals, they, his, his method would have been very similar to the, um, to the wolves that were hunting beaver. So that he would have to yeah. be very stealth, come up on them when they were hauled out on the shore and, and tackle them. And he did this with very large uh, seals. That's incredible. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on briefly is you wrote that you sought permission from the Songhees chief and council to be on their lands and to do the work you were doing. Um, that is not something that I think a lot of folks would necessarily think of immediately. What was the importance of that for you personally? Um, I was aware because I had been going out to these islands for many years and uh, there had been a large number of years that the Songhees did not have any presence on the islands at all. The The band actually lives quite um, a distance from the islands themselves and they, they are not, they don't inhabit the islands. Um, but I did uh, learn that they were, that out there, part of the islands are reserve lands, not all of them. There's also a park, um, provincial park, and there's also ecological reserve land. So it's kind of a mosaic of, um, of uh, people who, who care for the land out there. The Songhees began about, I think it was probably about 10 years ago now, to, um, to take more responsibility for looking after the land that uh, was sometimes being abused by people who would come and have parties out there. And so they had right. put up signs. And um, so I was more aware of the, of the uh, stewardship of the land and felt it respectful right. uh, to um, request their permission because otherwise it, it was illegal to go on the land uh, because it's trespassing. It's their reserve land. And Correct. also, yeah. I, I just honestly thought that they would be very interested in participating with me and in, in being part of the film. When I, It was when I decided to do the filming that I made that request, because otherwise I was primarily uh, photographing from my boat um, or I was on land right. that was the park land. So uh, that hadn't been an issue. But when I was 
wanting to film and get more intense about it, uh, that's why I involved them. Uh, yeah, I think that's very important to note. And I think it's something that when we talk about wildlife, it is important to keep in mind that very seldom are we on nobody's land. Um, and very seldom is there no relationship to the land. So it is important to ask those questions and be respectful, as you said. And there are times when we can very easily break the law, too. Uh, so it, again, very important to, to do that. Uh, I'm just skipping around my notes again, trying to make logical connections to things. Um, that's how professional I am. Probably <laughs> edit this part out. I just was going to add to that. I think that, um, you know, the, the issue of land ownership uh, is an interesting one because in a way we all have responsibility to steward mm -hmm. our wild lands uh, as we have less and less of it left. Um, and some of it is under the stewardship of, of um, private landowners. Some is uh, First Nations, some is government, uh, you know, public lands. Uh, but we all have a stake in making sure that we protect what is valuable. And that includes that we protect the wildlife uh, that are part of that. Yeah, that is significantly more eloquent than what I said. And I'm just going to pretend that I said it. <laughs> you can, you can repeat it now. Um, and make myself <laughs> feel better. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's that's a wonderful way of saying it. Um, I want to talk a bit about your relationship with Takaya. Like, how do you form a relationship with a wild animal in this way? And I apologize for that term, wild animal. Um, but to set that question, kind of, how do you develop a relationship where you don't necessarily interact, where there is this space between you? There is this recognition that we are of separate worlds to a degree. It feel, at least that's how it felt to me. It, it sort of, it, it had the vibe of Takaya was accepting that you were there and was <clears throat> okay with it. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a very uh, accurate way to phrase it because um, it, was, it was in no way that he behaved um, with me as a pet or as anything other than a wild animal ever. Uh, he, I think it, you know, my understanding, I've been in, in the wilderness a lot. I have a great respect for the wild uh, processes, for the wild creatures that live there, for the ecology. And it's not up to us to generally interfere with that. So right away, I'm working from a basis of respect and for the animal and for that animal's life. So when I started to observe him, first of all, I think I was greatly helped by the fact I was primarily on the water in a boat and he was primarily on land. So there was already a natural division between us. Uh, and I think that helped him become comfortable uh, with me, yep. but it, it took a little while. It was, and you know, I, I would anchor my boat and I just be very quiet. And I, I thought of myself as a, as a witness that I was actually just uh, a, a passive witness to his life rather than engaging in his life. And uh, in that respect, I wanted to ensure that that was the case um, because I didn't want him to um, be adversely affected by my presence at all. So yes. I um, watched to see if there, he was in discomfort <laughs> of any kind. And I ended up, um, the first time that I realized that he probably was very um, 
trusting of me, of my presence and, and comfortable was uh, probably about a year after I had begun to sporadically be out there. And I was observing him. He was doing his thing. I was out in the boat and he, he then, um, was laying down and then a group of, I, he heard something and I could see that he heard something, but I didn't hear it. They can hear a lot quicker than we can. Mm -hmm. And so he, he yep. went and he laid down sure behind can. this grass and he just sort of peered out and I thought, Oh, what's going on? And then I noticed that there was a group of kayakers coming through the islands. And so I kind of looked the other way, pretend like I wasn't looking at anything. He, they did not see him. He observed them the whole time. And once they were gone, he came back out and laid down right where he had been. And then he proceeded to roll upside down and, you know, feet in the air. And it was, it was very yeah. cool. And I thought, wow, he actually really trusts me that he's willing to put himself in that vulnerable kind of position. And so I actually contacted David Meech, who was, who is the guru of Wolf. Yep. <laughs> uh, he's written a huge number of textbooks yep. and scientific information about wolves. And I phone, I just phoned him up. And I said, you know, can I talk to you a little bit? I've got this situation where I'm observing this wolf and I want to run a few things by you. And so one of the things I asked him was what he thought, uh, was I negatively um, imposing on Takeo or habituating him? And he said, no, nope, not at all. He said, you are simply, um, he has simply learned that you are not a threat to him in any way. And he is obviously just carrying on with his life. Uh, so that's what enabled me to yeah. feel comfortable doing what I was doing and also um, realized that he, that I actually was now being given a glimpse into his life as he lives it out there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And the, the stories you tell of that, there's one where you mentioned, uh, I actually uh, wrote down where you have it in here. And again, it's in my messy notes. Yeah. Just um, keeping an eye on you is the same way. So the way you wrote about Takaya keeping an eye on you is the exact same way JJ, who is, currently, I think, behind my couch, typically keeps an eye on me. She lays down, head on pause, in a position where, so I'm in a small apartment, she can see where I am, she can see where other people might be, and she's in a position between me and her food. And, <laughs> but she, it's, it's that same laying down, head on pause, just watching, I'm keeping yeah. an eye on things. And that, again, for me, is one of those moments that, and this is how I got more involved in wildlife, was recognizing that behavior is universal. That's, that's not a dog thing. That's not a human thing. That's, that's a sentience thing. That's, I care about you. I'm curious and I'm going to keep an eye on things. Yeah. It's, it's a very simple emotional reason that we, we try and push away, I think, with a lot of that other stuff that comes into our heads. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very, you know, the, the connection that I had with Takea, I think, I mean, if you just distill it down, it was one of trust uh, in terms of, um, not that he felt I was doing anything for him. He just was okay with my presence. And yes. I actually do think I provided him with some connection with a sentient being that he didn't otherwise have because mm -hmm. he, there was no, there were no other animals out there that he could interact with, um, in any way. Uh, yeah. v visual contact apart from things he was killing. So it was, it was a really interesting 
thing to begin to understand that maybe I gave him some companionship, which dogs and wolves crave like we all do and you know a normal wolf would have that in his pack or in other uh creatures that he would be around whereas takea didn't have that option yeah and that's and that's where we see the videos of you know wolf and you know spider become best friends uh and well i can accept you and you can accept me and we can be together for right now and that's okay uh speaking of that that close relationship how do you prevent that from going too far how do you both, so I'm going to speculate, there is a desire to to care for, I think all of us who are animal lovers will have that at the very least motivation somewhere in our minds when we're around animals. Uh, and then just, it's a matter of how loud it is and how much louder we are when we reason away from it. And what steps did you take to make sure that this that Takaya would not become so comfortable that he starts taking risks with others too? Yeah, I didn't ever observe that he was comfortable taking risks with people. He didn't. So, you know, there was a campground on the island and he never approached uh, people in the campground. He would sometimes walk through it. I mean, he it was his domain out there, right? It was his territory. And I think people were kind of like um, a bit of a nuisance in a way or they were they were there occasionally and he was okay with that like he in order to live successfully where he chose to live he actually had to figure out how to accept the presence of people not close and i i know of a couple of different encounters where when people did actually encounter him on a trail they both ran the other way so that yep. you know it wasn't it wasn't that he attempted in any way to get close to people uh, and he didn't attempt to get close to me it was um, to con- consistently, he had a very clear uh, personal boundary when it came to human beings. And okay. so I was um, just very aware of that, cognizant of the fact that he was, um, he was creating his own uh, way of interacting with people that was not interaction, but was, as you say, observing, accepting, and sometimes curious. I I did observe him following along people sometimes because that's what was happening out there. You know, it was, it was a bit of stimulation, Uh, but he, he chose when and how to do that. And he did it in a safe way for himself. So I, I just, um, it was, I, I didn't ever believe that my presence there was um, adversely affecting him in any way. Uh, he put it in a good uh, perspective. I also think you did a lot of great work reaching out. And as you were reading and talking with experts, it sounds like you were also sort of learning the, okay, this is, you know, here are maybe the limits I need to be aware of. And, you know, someone like David Meech, uh, again, a renowned wolf expert, who uh, he's the one who coined the Alpha uh, Omega concept, which he then later recanted, despite the fact that no one ever pays attention to that, uh, especially in the media. And they're but, still recounting, recanting it. <laughs> I, oh, it's, it's, it's a, as, a, as a communicator in wildlife, let me tell you, I need to have a chat with David Meech. Um, <laughs> let's go back in time. Um and one of the other things that I found curious was that around 2012, there was concerns 
that Takaya wouldn't have enough to eat, that he would be too close to people, and therefore had to be trapped. As all good wolves, he did not get trapped. And it seems like it was something that kept coming up and kept coming up. And then the song he's First Nation came out and said and advocated as well, saying, stop, this wolf belongs, leave him be. Yeah. And that was effective. That was, I think, the ultimate advocacy was, uh, you know, the folks whose land this is traditionally, um, who, you know, are stewards who have this relationship said, we don't want you doing that there. And the government listened to it. Yes, they they did try to trap him twice, uh, and yep. then they, and they failed twice. So it was great that they then listened to the song he's advocating uh, to let him be and to just see what happens. And if he can't feed himself out there, he'll move on. And yes. he did not. So uh, that was, and it did keep, a, there were a couple of times when it was potentially problematic, but for the most part, you know, he was there for eight years. He had almost no interaction with people uh, that was in any way construed negatively. Um, occasionally a couple of incidences happened that I was aware of that uh, someone had left like a bag of dog food out. I mean, who does that? Someone who actually really does not understand wolves, wild wolves. Uh, and, you know, yeah. they, they may have been thinking that they were doing him a favor, but um, they obviously did not understand that he did not need their help and he certainly didn't need kibble. And, and that, that was detri potentially detrimental. The, the two times that I found that, I simply removed it, wrote a note to the person, because obviously they were probably coming back, and said, explain to them why this was not an appropriate thing to be doing, and that in fact it was it was potentially um, destructive for Takea, and that they should um, not do that again. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, I don't think Takea needs uh, any cook-down carbs, really. Um... <laughs> One of the things that came up, and you wrote about this in the book, was a 2016 incident in which, um, I, I guess it was a, a family or some hikers were out on the island with their dog. Uh, and keeping in mind, there are signs at this point. Two dogs? Okay. There are signs at this point saying, you know, there's wildlife here. Don't bring your pets. Beware. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, this has been in the media for a few years now. Uh, you know, the, the Discovery Island wolf is now a known thing in BC. Uh, and they ended up having to call for help to be, quote, rescued from the wolf. And, you know, the, some of the media coverage was not ideal. Uh, what was your, uh, again, this is, this is my personal pet peeve, FYI, um, as listeners to the show are aware from my many rants on the subject over several years. What was your response to what the media coverage was and what you, and again, you wouldn't have known what happened, but you have a lot of insights, both to the geography and the wolf involved. So how did you, I guess, first react and what did you see as maybe the major issue in that coverage? In the coverage? Oh, wow. Well, I, I did know almost immediately that it had happened. Um, I was sent a text and I went out that next morning to the campsite and I did speak with people who directly spoke with the people who, where, who this had happened to. And what one of yeah. the key things that they said to me was that the people who had encountered him 
had the wolf had not behaved aggressively toward them at all, but that they were simply mm-hmm. afraid and that they didn't have an, didn't know what might happen. So the way it was reported in the media was to me appalling. Uh, it was as media does sensationalized. It was sensationalized through the words that they used and the pictures that they showed. So they didn't show pictures of Takea. They showed pictures, you know, stock pictures of a wolf snarling, looking evil. Um, And they used words like family trapped, uh, pin on the roof of a lighthouse. I mean, just a bunch of crap. And I found that incredibly um, frustrating, made me feel very angry because what it was doing was um, imperiling Takea and his his, uh, safe continued existence out there. So it was honestly, Michael, at that point that things changed for me in terms of what... um, of being willing to talk publicly about what I had been doing and learning. Until that point, I had spent two years keeping it very quiet. I didn't want to talk about it. I had um, started to film, but I had um, made a decision that I would not put the film out until he was no longer on the island because I was really worried about... um, stupid people coming out there and doing things that would endanger him. When the lighthouse incident happened, and I realized that his biggest threat was actually from the government and from the conservation service, uh, who would choose to kill him if they decided to, that's when I decided that it was very important to get word out about him, about his uniqueness, about his uh, specialness, about his life, uh, in order to better protect him. And in fact, that is what happened. Yes. And um, people fell in love with Takaya uh, through your photos, through the stories. And I think, again, that's one of the things that really comes through. And it is a uh, in, in your book, uh, a little bit of spoken or oral history style um, in that you have these little snippets from individuals. And this is the time I saw it. I just, I absolutely love that. It's, it just, it, it sits in my heart perfectly as a story about this individual and your experience. Um, and sadly, though, Takaya, I mean, with all of the incredible things he was doing, uh, I think one of the fun things that I got from the book was the camouflage. His natural coloring somehow does not match the forests of BC, but perfectly, perfectly matches this series of tiny little islands. It is the photos you have of that are just so wild. I again, you hear it, someone tells you about it, and you go, "Oh, that's cool," and then you see it, and it's just the response is, "Wow." Yeah, his his, his camouflage was quite incredible, and yeah. I did observe many people would go paddle right past him because most of the people out there were pat were kayakers or small mm. boaters uh and they would go right past and have no idea he was standing yeah. there standing laying sitting uh on a bluff or or actually right down on the beach sometimes and just mm. didn't see him yeah it's, it's so. incredible um uh, and it, again it shows just he was the king of those islands he knew where he was and how to get around them and you know, he was comfortable watching people go by his island, um, which I think is fun. But unfortunately, that is not the happy ending one would hope. Um, first, he was relocated 
or translocated. Uh, well, and... so do, do you, I don't know if you know that part of the story, but he, he was, um, he, it was in the winter and he, yes. for some unknown reason, decided to leave the islands and yeah. he ended up in downtown Victoria. There are many questions about that that will never be answered. Um, mm -hmm. There are many possibilities about why he left. Uh, and they include things like looking for a mate, although why he would wait till he was 11 to do that and not have done that in his younger years, um, I'm not sure. Uh, looking for food, no, he didn't need food. He had tons of food out there. Uh, he had no problem you know, looking after himself, providing for himself food possibly got swept away on the currents, super strong storms at that time and currents. Uh, when he crossed these channels, he was always really good, but maybe he made a mistake. Um, may, there's a hunter who, who consistently went out there, even though it was illegal, and would hunt ducks and possibly interacted with Takea in a way that freaked him out and uh, scared him off. So there are a lot of different reasons why, or maybe he just got bored there I had not been out for three yep. months before he left because actually I was writing the book and um mm. and and also it was super stormy uh tons of um wind and very difficult to get out so I had not seen him since November and it was so November December January when he left and I thought oh I wonder if he just actually needed some interaction or something with um, yeah. other beings. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, but he was then trapped, um, and captured in downtown by the conservation service. And it was in fact, his reputation by then that saved him from being shot. I remember that, uh, coming up and reading about it and hearing there's a wolf in Victoria. That's weird. And then people saying, I know that wolf, which again, back in my went brain went, that's also weird. Um, <laughs> But, and again, if you look at the map, for those who are not uh, familiar, um, from Discovery Island to Victoria it is not a quick little jaunt. It's a sizable hop around a couple of communities. Like Oak Bay is a good-sized town. Uh, if he came across that way, or he could have gone through University of Victoria. Like, any way to get into Victoria, he would have had to have traveled through a fair bit of stuff. He first. did. And if you follow the Instagram at all, if you're interested, I actually, again, in a, 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 a detective kind of way, ended up putting together a lot of his journey through the city. And he was observed and filmed and photographed by people I ended up um, stumbling across accidentally. People would contact me. And so I know a lot about his journey. He was he was jumping seven foot high, six, seven foot high fences. He was in people's yes. backyards. He was walking down the middle of streets. Uh, it was quite remarkable. He was in parkades. He was in um, almost in an old uh, a senior's home. <laughs> senior center yeah it sounds like he was he was he was uh he was concerned about where he was is the yeah. impression i get too he, he wasn't comfortable no he wanted out he he looked like he was looking yeah. for where to go how to get out yeah yeah um also familiar with that feeling when in a city um, <laughs> yeah. no kidding and it it again this is okay he got translocated and i think everyone kind of went okay 
And sadly, that's, again, not the end. Um, and depending on your comfort level with this, I'm not going to ask you to re-traumatize yourself if this is difficult. But if you are okay with it, telling what ended up happening uh, next. Yeah, I can speak about it. It's uh, It's been over a year now. I've ended up having to speak about it a lot. It, it is very emotional, very painful, and very sad for me what happened. But um, I was, when he was relocated... One, I was ecstatic that they didn't kill him, <laughs> which is what I was worried yeah. would happen. Um, but I was quite angry at the decision they made about where to to put him. Uh, I s- believe strongly they should have put him back in his territory. He was an old wolf. Uh, he um, had all kinds of dangers in the new place that they decide to put him, including uh, in between a couple of wolf packs uh, and inter they do wolf pack will not easily accept another wolf in their territory. Uh, He would likely have been killed. Um, Hunters, trappers will people who have run trap lines out there for wolves, roads, community um, and no seals. (laughs) So he, it was, it was an area that was very unkind to place him in. And it was uh, an expedient decision on the part of conservation, I believe. Uh, That's at the best. Uh, At the worst, people have felt that it was an intentional decision. So um, I did then learn a bunch again uh, because people would contact me or I would um, uh, sleuth out some of his life out there. So I did end up uh, over those couple of months learning some very interesting things about his life. And, you know, Michael, I loved the thought that he was running through the rainforest and he was, he had a large area to range in. And some of those areas out there are stunningly beautiful. And he, he was succeeding in finding um, food to eat primarily probably small mammals like beaver, uh, which is what he had in his stomach when he was uh, killed two months later. So he he had gone quite a distance in along the coast toward Victoria, which was back toward where his home territory was. And I do believe, and there's enough evidence in other animals, uh, including dogs and wolves, that they are very capable and will travel back to their home territory. So he had gone about 50 kilometers in that way. And he then probably came upon a couple of wolf packs that live in, in that area. And I, my guess is it, he turned back because of that, because he wouldn't, um, he would, the markings would be clear that he was entering other territory. And then he, uh, a few days later, went the other direction, uh, 50 kilometers. And it would have taken, it was, it was almost two thirds of the way back to the islands. Um, and it would have been not long before he probably would have been back there. So the fact that he encountered a hunter um, along the way who chose to shoot him uh, is is extremely tragic and um it it and and the fact that that was legal to do so that's one of the things that became becomes a problem in bc that any hunter to was not in any way aggressive according to the hunter uh he was just 15 meters away from him he had the hunter that was cougar hunter so had dogs and uh Takeo was very interested in dogs i think um because it, it gave him a, a a 
an animal to connect with of his own kind, essentially. And so he was curious, he was watching, and he was he just stood there looking at the hunter when the hunter decided to raise his gun and shoot him. That's difficult. And to me, it's appalling that an individual would make that decision looking at that animal. And it's also appalling that our government uh, accepts that this is acceptable behavior on the part of hunters, that they are allowed to choose when and where to shoot wolves. Uh, wolves have no protection in BC uh, at the moment at all. They, they are considered less than vermin uh, and in fact often referred to as vermin. And they are one of the only animals, apex predators in BC, of which you don't need a, a, a specific uh, license to kill. You know, if you want to kill a bear, you have to get a, a license and they control the number of licenses. There's no such thing for wolves. Yeah, the, the tag system. Um, and yeah. of note, so I, I pulled this article because I just wanted to read one sentence. This is from February 12th, 2021. So sometime later. Um, ba -ba -ba -bum. Katrine Conroy, the Minister for Forest Lakes, Lands, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development, said in an interview Thursday that she was unaware until this week that there are no limits on trapping wolves in the province. So the politician whose job is to be in charge of the ministry that creates all this policy had no idea that there are no trapping regulations of significance or no limits, I should say, not regulations. There are no limits on the regs. Um, yeah. And again, that's one of those ones with when you consider how iconic wolves are, clearly how much people in British Columbia love wolves. I think Takaya proves that. Uh, that is, to me, very, very surprising and shows a desperate disconnect that needs to be repaired. Um, and I, I, you know, it's it's hard not to just point a finger, but at the same time, it's, it's hard to not point a damn finger when stuff like this goes on. Uh, and it's pretty easy yeah. to do, too. <clears throat> yeah, that was shocking. Uh, there were two shocking things about that. One is that there was no understanding that there's no limit to the number of wolves you can trap. And for the most part in BC, there's also no limit to the number of wolves you can shoot. Mm -hmm. uh, there, And in fact, even worse than that, the ministry encourages hunters to shoot wolves mm -hmm. and encourages them to shoot collared wolves if they happen to see them. So uh, it is a very big disconnect from the rest of the most of the population of BC, which the uh, organization out here just did a, a poll, uh, a professional poll, and it was really strongly um, noted that 80 to 90% of people in BC do not approve of uh, ki recreational killing of wolves. Yeah. So the government is behaving in a way and has regulations that do not reflect the, the evolving um, uh, values uh, and ethics of our uh, population. And the second shocking thing that happened that uh, Minister Conroy said was that in order to repair this um, problem uh, with uh, trapping regulations, she was going to consult with the BC Wildlife Federation only. Yep. And the BC Wildlife Federation is misnamed it is actually a BC hunting federation, strongly. So uh, the fact that a minister of the, the the people responsible for wolves would 
consult only with the people who actually want to kill wolves is uh, disgusting. Yeah, it is a it's a built in flaw to the North American model of wildlife conservation that wildlife must be used. That is the problem with that entire philosophical stance. And it is ingrained in virtually all of our conservation programs in Canada. It's a real problem. Yes, it's a consumptive model of wildlife and our relationship to wildlife. And it's also kind of an outrageous assumption that we humans should be managing all of these wildlife and determining how many of them there should be and where they should be and uh, what we need to do to control them and that we should be able to kill them when we want and eat them when we want. And it's a we have a lot to um, to. Uh, reflect on and to change how what our our model of interacting with wildlife is i a thousand percent agree and the way things have always been is a perfect reason to look at why we need to change (laughs) in my opinion i want to ask you a couple of sort of final questions um the reaction when takaya was killed was very mixed and very loud the two parts of the question here are one, why do you think so many people got so attached to Takaya and what Takaya represented? And what do you think was the, the mo or the loudest or the largest response in terms of his death? Oh, the loudest response. I'll answer that first was very definitely, uh, one of outrage of, uh, anger, anger, uh, of um, disbelief that that someone would choose to shoot a wolf like Takea. I mean, he 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 was. Um, you know, it's, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say he he was quite a stunning specimen of a wolf. Oh, he's beautiful, beautiful wolf, wolf. and Gorgeous. he also yeah. had a demeanor that was gentle. Uh, you could see it in his eyes. There was something about the way he behaved that he truly was like a Zen wolf. So that that a person would, you know, I think that's what caused the outrage. And it also may be what caused the strong connection that people around the world have now had with Takea. He was, um, through me, people were able to, see him as an individual, as an individual sentient being. And for the most part, we don't get an opportunity to see wildlife like that. We we think of them as a pack or or a population of wolves or a population of deer or a population of bear, but we don't often get to know an individual animal. And so I think that getting to know this individual wolf had a very powerful impact on people's understanding um, of what a wolf is or can be and I also think he had so many admirable qualities that people were inspired by him and it came along at COVID time right so the his his um reputation expanded after the film and went to you know it was shown in Europe in France and Germany and the UK and I I continue to get um uh 
comments and notes and messages from people all around the world about their feeling strongly that Takea has has meant something very significant during this time for them. And I think it also may have been about the isolation and the fact he survived alone. And we all of a sudden were surviving alone in our isolation, in our COVID isolation form, and having to confront um, being alone in a different way than we we had previously. And and Takea, people would write to me and say, Takea has helped me make it through this time. Takea has changed my life. I just had a note yesterday from an 11-year-old boy in Switzerland, near Grenoble, saying how very much he loved his story and just wanted to know what his what happened in his life now and I'm devastated because I have to write back to this kid and tell him what happened and it's really difficult I get these messages all the time from people so excited did he find a mate you know partly it's our romantic notion we wanted him to find a mate because he wanted one, I think. And so, you know, it would have been romantic if if that female wolf had made it across. And people write, did she make it? Did they yeah. ever get together? <laughs> and I have to say, no, he was It's shot. heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm going to bring something up. I, I, I made a note of this and you just said it again and I want to talk about it very briefly. As you wrote, I have no illusions or romantic notions about Takaya. And that... Again, that's one of those ones that for me just sort of really helped encapsulate your experience, because that is something we hear a lot about these days, particularly in our conservation circles. People say, oh, well, you're just Disneyfying nature and you don't know what it's like. And they're they're horrible beasts and this and that. And you're saying that, you know, while you have hope and you have these these thoughts, you also are. It feels like you're keeping it one foot very solidly on the ground uh, in terms of your perspective of Takaya being, and again, you know, uh, although I respect him as a sentient being, uh, a wild animal. He is a wild animal, and I had no illusions whatsoever about that. I watched him rip apart seals and and eat baby seals, which were really hard for me. It was hard for me to see, Um, but he, he was to the end, a wild animal. He did not lose his wildness uh, in spite of the fact some people tried to say, oh, he became wild and tame and that's why he was shot. No, he actually simply trusted people. He had a different relationship that is possible. I'm not saying all wild animals are gonna have a trusting relationship with human beings. And there is, we are, we are evil in some ways. We, we are destructive uh, creatures in this world. And so, we what you know hunters bring up this oh have you their wolves are horrible have you ever seen them rip apart uh you know a a baby elk (laughs) well yes because that's all they have they have their teeth and they're surviving they're eating they want exactly what we want as human beings they want to eat they want a good place to live and they want um company they want you know to procreate and that's exactly what we're doing and we do it in the same way but we just do it with weapons and tools so we kill things we dig things up we um you know we are not different we are animals and um (laughs) and we should be 
controlled and called because there's way too many of us. That's a whole different topic. There, are, that, that's that's yes. Carrying capacity of Earth is a little rocky these days. I think that's a fair scientific yeah. statement. So, uh, and it's interesting when people bring that up too because. Uh, they say, well, you're from the city. You have no idea how horrible nature is, and we have to control these animals. It's a That is a dichotomy. What you're bringing up is a very important thing, I think, to address, because as more and more people live in urban or sorry, um, in cities, in urban areas, uh, there is this dichotomy that people who want to kill animals continually bring up. And it is, oh, you don't know living in your city with your gardens and your apartments. You don't know anything about nature. Uh, and so you have no right to weigh in on whether wolves should be killed or whether bears should be shot and or whether we should trophy hunt. And I say, be asked to that. Like we who live in cities First of all, how do they know we don't spend a lot of time out in the wilderness, which is true of many, many people. Mm -hmm. And we're not all out there carrying guns. We're some, a lot of us, most of us are out there carrying cameras and carrying children and, you know, hiking and, and enjoying that world. You don't have to kill animals in order to enjoy and benefit from a wilderness experience. It is in order to put down the people in the city who are fighting for the rights of these animals, they um, try to make uh, it look like people have no awareness of what wild nature is. And that's just simply not true. Well, my favorite, and I um, I no longer manage directly the social media for the fur bears, but I used to. And one of the things that comes up a lot is people coming on saying, you have no, this is frequently related to trapping stuff that we post. Uh, and we deal with some awful injuries and things and people post and say, oh, well, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, snares aren't used by anyone anymore. Blah, 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 blah. You need to catch up on your trapping regs. Say snares are one of the most common traps across Canada. Here's Cabela selling a set of 12. Here's 18 videos on how to set them. And here's the Ministry of Natural Resources in Ontario encouraging farmers to use them. So here is someone proclaiming that they are a trapper telling us we don't know what we're talking about. And it's like, no, you're wrong. And here are the 18 links that prove it beyond all reasonable doubt. Uh, but because I live in a city, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, no, it's it's a, a, it's a shocking um, division that needs to be uh, healed in some way, I yeah. think. And, you know, we have a NBC here. I'm sure you probably know this as <laughs> for bears, but there are industries, there are people who offer trapping adventure holidays so that people primarily from the U.S. but also maybe from Canada can hire, uh, have their adventure holiday. And the whole point of the adventure holiday is to go out and someone sets a bunch of traps with them, snares, neck snares included, and they trap a bunch of animals and kill them. And that's yep. their their fun adventure holiday. And it's it's quite um, shocking <laughs> that, that we have yes. a government that encourages and accepts these kind of industries in our province. Yeah. And I encourage anyone listening to go back and look up. Uh, I was telling you before, we're having someone organize these for us now, and it would be a real helpful to have it right now. But I did an episode specifically looking at, I think, the cost comparison of trophy or sorry, the, the economic benefits of uh, trophy hunting and ecotourism. Uh, this is a few years ago when the grizzly hunt was being debated. And it's 10 to 1. 
tourism over uh, hunting in terms of dollars and cents when it comes to eco ecology when it comes to nature related stuff like that it's it's a very plain to see that um, it is not a strong majority of folks uh, who are on that side of things. Uh, I want to, I've used up so much of your time already, and I had two things I wanted to, to, to get at the end. One is, you know, how do we help? How do we help so that this doesn't happen again? How do we help protect the wolves on the islands? How do we help protect the wolves on the mainland? Um, because it feels almost impossible sometimes. And I think, you know, I, I read your book and I, I would feel so defeated and so heartbroken uh, after everything you have endured, after the beautiful stories you have shared. And yet here you are continuing to advocate. So the two parts of that one question are, what can we do and how do we keep doing it? Where do we pull that from? I think we have no choice but to continue doing this if we want wilderness and wildlife and actually our very um, life-giving uh, habitat to continue existing. I have five grandchildren. I want those kids to grow up and be able to at least, even if they don't see a wolf in the wild, know that they're there and hear them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want the um, ecosystems to be healthy. And we know that we need these apex predators uh, to maintain our healthy ecosystems. So I think we have no choice. <laughs> That's my first. We just have to keep fighting. Uh, I, with Takea, you know, I didn't imagine that this would be my life over the last year and a half. Uh, it has become very focused on ensuring that his legacy uh, is strong and changes things for wolves in the future. So um, it, it's more than a full-time job and I am driven to do it out of respect for Takea and for what I learned uh, about him and about wolves as I was going through these last eight years. So I think I'm encouraged right now, <laughs> at maybe uh, falsely, but um, Takea's legacy is making a difference. It's really causing a stir out here. Uh, it, it people are, it's mm -hmm. something people are all of a sudden waking up to and they're, is an initiative on the island right now. It has to happen at a grassroots level. It has to happen at a political level. There has to be pressure on politicians to examine what the heck they're doing in relation to our, our wildlife management. And um, the, 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 the um, initiative on Vancouver Island has been initiated by an Oak Bay municipality who said, you know what? He was important to us. He was in our area. There a very large memorial um, sculpture, marble sculpture is being has been created and will be erected very soon in the um, a point just across from where he lived, and that will be in the Opie municipality. So that triggered them to um, work with me to. Uh, develop a moratorium basically uh, or sorry a proposal requesting that bc impose a moratorium on recreational killing of wolves until such time as they have a better handle on how many wolves there are what the role is and at, that they at least put in place basic things like a, a tag system so that wolves are respected as the significant apex predators that they 
really are. So that moratorium, request for a moratorium, has gone now to the Vancouver Island municipalities, and they are. it is being considered uh, mm-hmm. as we speak, and on the 28th, the island municipalities will vote on whether to send it to the BC uh, municipal, municipal Association. And so far, a large number of municipalities have come out uh, in support of this. To learn more about Cheryl's work, see photos of Takaya and more, visit takayaslegacy.com. You can also find Takaya's legacy across social media channels, and links are available in this week's show notes and at thefurbearers.com. The book, Takaya, published 2020 by Rocky Mountain Books, is available in your local bookstores, libraries, or online via takayaslegacy.com or rmbooks.ca. A quick note, following our interview, I did look up the pronunciation of Takaya and was fortunate to find a video of a person from the tsleil Nation using it in an educational context. I've done my very best to learn how to say it properly, though I am somewhat known for being really, really bad at accents. If you'd like to see that video, check the show notes. I'll provide the link there. I want to thank Cheryl for sharing her time with me. I'd also like to thank her team member, Javen, and Jillian at Rocky Mountain Books for their support in getting all of the elements of this episode together. Remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to get notified of new Defender Radio episodes. If you're not sure how or have been listening on the website, we've got some brand new videos to show you how to subscribe with your smart device. Check the links in the show notes for those, too. You can also follow me at Howie Michael on Instagram and the Defender Radio Podcast on Facebook. The Fur Bearers can be found on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching Fur Bearers. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bearers, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs> <laughs>